you can indeed argue that Europe is very well structured and well organized, but sometimes it can also be suffocating in Europe, especially in Western Europe where I come from. As an entrepreneur, you cannot almost do anything anymore. Um, and it's not only me who's saying that. I mean, it's basically everybody in Western Europe saying the same. That's why you find so many people in, in Asia and in other parts of the world nowadays from, from Europe. It's just over-regulated. I think we should motivate and stimulate students, especially, you know, university students, young adults, to travel as much as possible before they, you know, start a family or they get, you know, up to a job and they have to stay put. By doing so, you also accept them more. It will be easier to accept different views, different attitudes, um, and I think that's extremely important. That was Asia Trailmaster Chris Van de Velde. My name is JP Alipio, and you're listening to the Wildcast Podcast. The Wildcast Podcast. I would like to invite all of you to help support the production of the Wildcast Podcast by buying us a coffee. All you have to do is go to buymeacoffee.com slash wildcast and buy us a coffee. Buy us two coffees, three, five, ten. All of those coffees will keep us caffeinated and keep us going, creating this content, talking to all of these amazing individuals and sharing their stories with all of you. So go to buymeacoffee.com slash wildcast and buy us a coffee. Welcome back to the Wildcast Podcast and today we're discussing all things trail running because today we have a special guest, Chris Van de Velde. Chris is the founder of and the race director of the Asia Trail Master Series, which is one of the most prestigious trail running series in Asia with races in countries such as Thailand, Philippines, Malaysia, Indonesia, uh, Taiwan, Hong Kong. The ATM Series attracts top trail runners from all over the world come to test their skills on some of the most challenging courses in the region. One of those courses, of course, is the race that we organized, the Cordillera Mountain Ultra, which we have been holding since 2015. And we have been members of the Asia Trail Master Series since 2016. So quite a long time now for this partnership with the Asia Trail Master Series um, with Chris. And... Uh, in addition, of course, to his work as a race director, Chris is an accomplished trail runner himself. Having completed many of the races in the ATM series, he knows firsthand what it takes to succeed on the trails and has a deep appreciation for the natural beauty and challenges that come with trail running. In this episode, we'll talk to Chris about his journey as a trail runner and race director, the unique challenges and rewards of organizing trail running events in Asia, and his vision for the future of trail running in the region. We also dive into the Cordillera Mountain Ultra and learn more about what makes this event special. Of course, it's our event. Uh, so sit back, relax, and get ready to be inspired by one of the most innovative figures in Asian trail running. This is the Wildcast Podcast, and our guest today is Chris Van de Velde. Hi, Chris. Welcome to the Wildcast Podcast. So thank you so much for coming on board and sharing your story with us. So for the guests, uh, my guest today is Chris Van Velde. He is the CEO of the Asia Trailmaster, a former pro uh, cycling, uh, a former cycling pro. Uh, also Semi-pro, I would say. Semi-pro. <laughs> and, and of course, he's a Belgian, so very much into cycling and a lot of sports. So welcome, Chris, to the Wildcast podcast. Yeah, thank you very much, GP. Thank you for having me. Um, as I was saying, it's actually more semi-pro. I mean, I was not a world tour rider or something like that. So, so it's too much honor. Right. Well, you know, you still run a pretty fast marathon. I think the genes and the, the, the endurance muscle is there. Yeah. Um, that's probably true what you say. The endurance muscle is, is probably in, in me, yeah, um, because I come from a family with a, with a sporting background. My grandfather, um, he was actually a professional cyclist in his day. Okay. Um, unfortunately, his, his cycling career got interrupted by the uh, Second World War, but he was one of the best riders in the Belgian peloton 
uh, at that time. So in the late 1930s and then also after the war still, uh, so 1946, 47, 48, he won a truckload of races in Belgium, including what was then the second biggest classic in Belgium, in Bruges. It's called the Golden Sporen race. It's a reference to a battle. So he's basically like the Wout van Aert of his time. Uh, he, I don't think he ever did cyclocross. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I think he was only road racing, but he was known. Um, these are, okay, I knew my grandfather still for a long time. He passed away when he was uh, 91 years old in 2010. Oh, wow. So I had the, I had the pleasure and I'm very happy that I, I really got to know my grandfather, even as an adult myself. Um, and I heard all these stories of cycling in his day with, uh, with a lot of uh, interest and a lot of excitement because it was very different, as you can imagine. Um, he was still from a time, for example, there were no gears. Yes, know, yeah, yeah, you had to flip the, and then, and then flip the wheel, right? That's what these things Flip the wheel, yeah. When you, you climb up the hill and then when you reach the top of the hill, you have to flip the wheel to go down <laughs> with, a bigger, uh, with a bigger gear. So, um, But yeah, he was, he was a... He was a very strong cyclist, apparently uh, very well known. So in my region in Zele, where I come from in eastern Flanders in, in Belgium, the Van der Velde name is, is, uh, is known. Uh, and that's thanks to my grandfather first. Uh, and my father, um, he was also into cycling, but he was more talented as a runner. And he did a lot of um, cross-country running, especially. Um, I see. So that's where you get those genes. Eh? Yeah. So it's a mix. And, and I did both. I mean, I started out as a runner, as a kid. Um, I had apparently some talent. So I had a few Flemish titles uh, in track and field, in sprinting, in distance running 800 meters, but also in the shot put, for example. Um, I actually had the Belgian record uh, in the minus 13 year old category at the time uh, with shot put. 12 meters uh, 63 with a four kilo shot. So that was... Uh, okay, right. right. And I, I won that title three years in a row, the Flemish title. And um, yeah, people saw in me a big talent for that discipline, especially shot put. Um, but yeah, as you can imagine, if you look at the Olympic Games or the World Championship track and field, shot putters, they're quite big guys. And uh, Yeah, yeah, they're, they're huge, yeah. right? Like, Huge so, I mean, I was not really into developing into that kind of a powerhouse. Um, and anyway, my interest started to fade a little bit in track and field when I became a teenager and I more and more got into cycling. I got my first race bike, which was my an old bike from my grandfather. Okay. Started riding. This had gears um, at this time already, right? I mean, it wasn't. It had already a few gears, <laughs> but it was still gears on the handlebar. Oh, okay. You know, the, the friction shifters. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, that's how I started on the bike, and then yeah, became part a member of of the local uh, cycling team, uh, which was just a leisure team. But I was still only 15, 16 years old, and and that went very well. So each Sunday morning we went riding um, with the group, forty people, fifty people, like everybody else on Sunday mornings in Flanders. And uh, every Sunday also there was like a segment of about 10 to 15K that we would be racing. Oh, okay. okay. And, and quite often, I mean, even though I was still very, very young, I would be among the, the lead. Right. Or I even won sometimes as a solo. Yeah. And, um, and yeah. And then, and again, so, you know, this, this kind of motivated me to also start racing a little bit. Um, first modestly, as I mean, I also... I Were you under the under 23 uh, racing? No, no. Um, because also, I mean, I went to university then uh, in Antwerp, right? And of course, I had to say that had priority. Okay, okay, yeah. Um, and after university, when I finished my university degree, um, that was in languages, right? Foreign languages, translation and interpreting. Um, I went to, went to Germany. Um, I got a job in Frankfurt, Germany, in the European Central Bank. And uh, when I was there, then actually I also started to cycle more. This may sound contradictory, but, <laughs> um, you know, my, my life was very well regulated then, you know, with an, kind of an office job, right? And then in before and after office hours, I was able to train. It's like a nine to five, yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's when I then really started to, to develop as a cyclist as well. And, and I got into a team. And like I said, this was more like a semi-professional team. 
which you have everywhere in Europe. Um, so we had all the sponsors and everything. Uh, we got a bicycle. Um, that was all covered. I mean, we were racing every weekend. Oh, wow. Um, okay. And there was something called the German Cycling Cup. I think it still exists at, uh, even today. And uh, I was mostly uh, featuring in that one. Um, and in a couple of years, I had some very good results in that as well. And you also, I remember you told me you've, you'd finished the Paris-Roubaix race. Is, it, is this yes. the Paris-Roubaix race that everybody hears about? The same race, uh, right? Yeah, yeah, it was exactly the same course, but it was not. It was not the race that you see on TV in April. Okay, it right. was like the one level below that. Okay, yeah. all right, all right. And how was that? You know, in Europe, we have cycling in different categories, right? But Paris Roubaix was a fantastic experience for me. Um, I mean, I did the Tour of Flanders, coming from Flanders, the Tour of Flanders every year, basically. And Paris Roubaix, I did it um, only once. Um, I think it was 2006. 2006, yeah. And I did the full course, 265 kilometers with uh, with uh, over 50 kilometers of cobblestone, exactly the same course as, as the the World Tour ra- uh, race. And uh, when we did it, it was uh, it was an extremely hot day. It was over 30 degrees. Um, so it was dusty and very very dusty and very hot. Um, um, but I, I liked it. I mean, it was it is super exciting to go on cobblestones. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not something that everybody is, is comfortable with. It's completely different than mountain riding. Yeah, especially the jarring of the, you know, yeah. it's like, basically it's like riding a mountain bike. <laughs> it would be like yeah. riding a mountain And in those years, I mean. Without the suspension. Without the suspension. And in those years, it was still on the on the very small, narrow tires. That's right. 23 inch 23. tires. Yeah. Now they ride 28, yeah. Standard is kind of 28. And, and very high pressures, I, I'm assuming, yeah. right? You would you would ride it at like 100 PSI or something. Yeah, we call it bar. So, yeah. I mean, nowadays, the, nowadays people ride in 60 PSI or something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that, this is also strategy, right? I mean, some people, they like to put a lot of air in it. Others, uh, not a lot. It depends on how much comfort you wish. And, of course, the lower uh, the lower the pressure you put in the tires, the more risk you have also of punctures. Yeah. Um, so you need to find the right balance um, for a race like Roubaix. Um, so I, I always choose a quite a, a strong pressure because I didn't mind a bit of bump, bumpy, you know, rides. I just put my mind to it um, because then also between the sections, between the cobblestones, and I also had good speed. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, yeah, on the smooth sections there. But yeah, it was the experience. It was a very big experience, and then uh, um, I was uh, I was on Carrefour de l'Arbre. You know, that's the last big section, like uh, eighteen to fifteen kilometers before Roubaix. Uh, there, the lights went out for me. So. Uh, for many people, so for me also, it was just lights out, and then it was just surviving to to the velodrome. But you want to survive, of course, you don't stop. Yeah. Um, but those last ten kilometers, especially, I mean, and you would be surprised if you're riding it yourself. It's not flat, flat, yeah, to the finish. Oh, there's like a false a flat, of, like a, a few degrees. Of- yeah, false flats, and and if you're already that, I mean, it's really painful. It really hurts. Um, but then you reach the velodrome, and that's a magic moment. Yeah, uh, you do that one lap on the velodrome, and then and that's 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 brilliant. Yeah, so and then you forget all the suffering, and you're just happy. And then you go into the shower, the famous, the legendary showers. I was in the shower. The legendary showers. Yeah, yeah. I took the shower of Marcel Kind, who was also a cyclist of, uh, you know, the early years uh, from Flanders. Uh, he won Paris Roubaix, I think, even a few times. I'm not entirely sure. But yeah, I had his shower. So. Nice, nice. I mean, a little bit of history right there. Huh? Yeah, yeah. And, and how how was it like being in a you know you're in Belgium is very much a cycling country, right? It's a yeah. I mean, that's like a national sport for for Belgium in in many ways. Yeah, in, in some ways, it's uh, is the most popular sport in in Belgium, um, but but especially in Flanders. You know, Belgium is kind of divided into two regions, right? We have the Flemish region and the Walloon region. And especially in Flanders, uh, cycling and cyclocross in winter is is even more popular than football. At least it was for a lot of years. Um, But in the last decade, the the Red Devils, the Belgian soccer team, has also been performing very well. So now it's a bit even, (laughs) I would would argue. 
But um, before, I mean, the Red Devils, when I grew up, they had their highlight in 1986 in Mexico, the World Cup. They were fourth there. And then it always went downhill, yeah. For about 20, 25 years, the Belgian soccer team was really not, not doing well. Um, and then cycling was very clearly number one. Um, we also had fantastic riders, not in the Grand Tours, but in the Classics, we still had uh, Johan Museu, we had Frank van den Broek then, uh, you know, colorful guys. Um, yeah, a lot of them, and Tom Bolen was a bit later, but in the 90s, uh, Johan Museu was the, was the king in Belgium, so to speak. Of, of Belgian uh, cycling, and uh, yeah, and, and it's it's in it's in our blood, you know. Um, cycling was founded originally in, in France, right? Um, but uh, very, but you know, very close to to Belgium, and uh, I think especially Flanders is pancake flat, with the exception of a few cobbled hills that you have in the Tour of Flanders. So it's really nice also for people to go out on the bicycle. Um, if, if you if you live in a hilly region like in Wallonia, the south of Belgium, there it's a lot of climbing. Yeah, therefore a lot of people it's just too hard to get out on a bike uh, because it's it's uh, really tough there to go cycling. Yeah? You need to be trained already almost. So aside from the Paris Roubaix, what would be the hardest race you joined when you were a semi pro, or was that the hardest race you joined? Uh, it, it was certainly among the hardest. Um, I, I was a pretty good climber. Yeah, I mean, in those days, the people who know me now, maybe from the Hazel Three Master Circuit, um, they might be surprised, but I was a very good climber on the bicycle um, because I was only 71, 72 kilos. I was okay, really, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the perfect five, climbing weight, yeah. Five, 5% fat, you know, fat percentage was very low, and I was also on a nutrition diet and all that. So, um, but yeah, when I, when I stopped cycling competitively, I mean, I immediately gained 10 kilos. So, I'm now around 85 last year um, because of COVID. Uh, I was able to train a bit again and I went to 83, 84. And that's when indeed, as you mentioned in the beginning, I was able to break my personal best on the marathon and the half marathon, which was very nice at my age. Yeah, what was your time again? Um, the half marathon was 128.40. Uh, wow. Um, and then about uh, six weeks later, I did a full marathon in Bruges and there was 308. Um, so it's sub 310 nice. without any specific preparation I, w- I know I was in relatively good shape at that time um, and, and without the super shoes eh? without super shoes I refused the super shoes yeah. <laughs> because you know I started running after my competitive cycling uh, time right so I did my first marathon in 2012 okay um, that was my last year also I stopped cycling that year and then later in the year I did my first marathon um, and I was a disaster. I got completely injured, injured my foot, my knee. So, because I was, I was not trained, <laughs> stupid me, well, classic mistake. Somebody, you know, you think you can do it. And yeah, I reached the finish line. I did reach the finish line, but I was totally injured and I couldn't run anymore for, for six months. I was out of action for six months afterwards, <laughs> which contributed then to my, my weight gain kind of. Yeah. Um, but then, uh, yeah, I mean, I didn't touch the bike for, for about three years, actually, because um, I just had enough and I started running. And in the time, I mean, in the whole context of things, I was also in China then, uh-huh. uh, starting to work there as a, as a race director and a race designer uh, for the company Nordic Ways. Okay. Wait, how did you get to China to begin with, like um, before that? Yeah, so that, that was, um, well, I was always traveling a lot in, in Asia. For work? Um, was it for work or? But no, that was just leisure. Okay. Yeah. Holidays, whenever I had a moment. Um, I was traveling in Asia, mostly Malaysia, Vietnam, and Indonesia, um, but also China. I went to China for the first time in 1999. Then I was still a student then, actually. Um, and then I went back 2003 in Yunnan uh, and Sichuan. So, and I climbed, went hiking in the Tibetan plateaus and all that. Um, so, I always had a thing for China especially also with the language and the stories of the dragons and, uh, and the martial arts. Um, and I was kind of intrigued and I always told myself that, you know, one day uh, I want to try and learn the language. As you remember, I have a master's degree in translation, so languages has been a bit my thing. So I wanted to try and, and learn Chinese, Mandarin Chinese. And then um, I was working in, in the European Central Bank for 10 years. Um, and then I had the opportunity to take unpaid leave. That was, at that time, that was a possibility for long-term staff members. 
So, and I took that opportunity to, to go to Dalian in the northeast of China, uh, where there was kind of a, a program for um, foreigners to, to study Mandarin for two semesters. But you start with one semester, you see how it goes, and then you can extend uh, for, for longer. That was in 2010. And, um, and yeah, I, that actually was a fantastic year for me. I also raced in China then, cycling. I've won a couple of races there also. Um, uh, and yeah, I mean, that's how I got into China. And then during one of the races in the second part of the year, I got to know um, the people from the company Nordic Ways, which is a Swedish Chinese company. Okay, Nordic Ways. Uh, yeah. They were there. The same company that organizes the Genghis yeah, Khan challenge uh, that you took part in. Yeah, sort of yeah, ev uh, yeah. events. Yeah. So, and that's how I got to know them. And they told me that. Uh, uh, they were actually looking for somebody who, who knows cycling and uh, running um, because they were expanding at the time. Their focus was mainly on winter sports, cross-country skiing, okay, um, and also orienteering. Orienteering. So that's a very popular sport in yeah, it's a very popular sport in Sweden, and um, and yeah, but you know the company was growing and the mass participation market in China was beginning at that time as well and they wanted to do more cycling and running events and and they asked me and but they basically they proposed me they gave me a, 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 a you know a kind of a contract i said look i mean if you can stay uh in china for a bit longer i mean this is what we offer you and that was pretty good and then i was able to extend my unpaid leave from the bank oh nice in germany okay. in frankfurt and so that was the perfect the perfect uh, scenario for me. So I could stay in China, and if that was not working out in the end, I could just go back to the bank as well afterwards. So I was a bit lucky there. Um, but yeah, things worked out very well in China. Um, so and that's how we got to know each other as well, I think, with the Genghis Khan Festival, which was kind of my first uh, big event that was under my uh, direction and supervision. The event already existed. Um, but it was relatively low key and um, they told me, okay, Chris, you do with the event what you want. You can redesign the whole program if you need to, if you think that's, that's necessary. Um, so carte blanche, do what you like. So yeah, and that was, for me, it was a great opportunity and I did actually redesign the whole course. It's a three-day mountain bike race, right? And a grassland marathon. That's right. That's right. Also yeah, half yeah, yeah. But it's a three-day festival. And in between, there's also like a bonfire party and, and banquet and all that in Inner Mongolia. So in the grasslands of, of Inner Mongolia. Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful area, actually. Yeah, it's fantastic. I, I, I love it <laughs> over there. So it became a bit of a cult event then. Um, and the number of participants also grew very, very quickly. Um, and yeah, so that for me, that was actually the beginning also of my kind of my career as a, as a you know, event manager race director um it put me on the map um because yeah it was successful the changes that i introduced were very successful and uh and then more projects came along and uh, that's how that all started and i just uh, stayed there basically and so you just give up the the banking job yeah, and, and stay yeah yeah correct yeah I mean, I went back still to, to Germany. That was uh, pension related. Uh, you know, uh, I worked a bit of part time still uh, between the bank and Nordic Ways. Uh, to, you know, that worked out also. Um, but uh, since, uh, yeah, basically since 2017, I'm, I'm full time uh, working as a race director. Right, right. And of course, also Asia 3 Master that came extra. So, how is it you don't, as a, as a European in Asia, you don't miss how it works in Europe. And of course, Asia is a very different place, you know, from, from living in, in Europe. Uh, it's a very different way to do business, different way to conduct yeah. with people. Um, is there something you miss from, you know, from moving from Europe to Asia? Um, well, there's a couple of things that I miss living in Asia and that's, uh, <laughs> But it's, for example, red wine. I mean, I'm a big <laughs> fiend for red wine. And uh, in Asia, it's more complicated to find a decent wine at a decent price. Um, but overall, no, I'm very happy in Asia. Um, that's also why I stayed here. Um, it's very different, for sure. You can indeed argue that Europe is very well structured and well organized. But sometimes it can also be suffocating in Europe, especially in Western Europe, where I come from. And I think... Um, 
even more and more so because because at, during the COVID times, I was compelled to go to return. Uh, so I, I lived basically in Belgium for two years again, 2020, 2021. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I was really happy when things got better with, with, the, with the Corona situation. And we had Asia Tremaster coming back this year because it, it, it was hard to breathe sometimes in, in, in Belgium because there's so many restrictions, so many regulations. As an entrepreneur, you cannot almost do anything anymore. Um, and it's not only me who's saying that. I mean, there's basically everybody in Western Europe saying the same. That's why you find so many people in, in Asia and in other parts of the world nowadays from, from Europe. It's just over-regulated. Um, in a way, you could argue it's... it's yeah, maybe it's a bit exaggerated, but sometimes you have this this doom image of the Soviet Union now in, in the European Union, right? Um and yeah, it's not for me. I mean, uh, it may sound very strange, but for example, in China as well, I feel sometimes much freer. Really? Uh, than I feel in Belgium. That's not, that's not something people will say about China, right? Well, it is actually all the many experts and many people, students also, but experts who live in China for quite a long time and who understand how China works. Um, admittedly, I mean, I left China one and a half years ago. It was the last time I'm there, yeah, because it's you cannot enter if you don't have an official residence in China. It's basically impossible to enter China now. But um, I was there last time in 2020, and even then, it was everybody was very nice to me, and you could basically do whatever you want within the framework that is provided, of course. But within that framework, you can you feel actually more at ease. Than I than I do actually at least in in, in Western Europe. Really, really. You so know, um, that that's that's like not a Westerner's view, right? Of China, most people would think of China as this strangling, controlling. Yeah, yeah. But, but of course, if you have never been there, I mean, you you have to see how the media, the mainstream media, they they pick the picture of of places, of countries, of people. You know that is. Yeah, you know, it's not necessarily 100% correct. Yeah? Um, yeah, of course. Yeah, and, and I think, I mean, even my friends in Belgium, also my family in Belgium, they do not understand uh, sometimes the stories that I tell about China because it it contradicts with their image of, of the country, the, con- the image that they are fed by the mainstream media, which is what they consume on TV or in the, in the newspaper. Um it's not, all, it's not only China, it's the same with other countries in Asia. So, um, Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I think it's uh, very important. I mean, traveling is extremely important, I find, for young people especially. Um, and I hope that this, this uh, will continue to be stimulated as well. Um, you know, that, that, that I think we should motivate and stimulate students especially, you know, university students, young adults, to travel as much as possible before they, you know, start a family or they get, you know, hooked to a job and they have to stay. Yeah, the learning from traveling really sort of opens opens your mind. Opens your mind. And you learn so much about different cultures, uh, different people, different ways of looking at the world, especially. And, and, you, and by doing so, you also accept them more. It will be easier to accept different views, different attitudes. Um, and I think that's extremely important. Um, for for a society because it just increases tolerance. I would like to invite all of you to help support the production of the Wildcast podcast by buying us a coffee. All you have to do is go to buymeacoffee.com slash wildcast and buy us a coffee. Buy us two coffees, three, five, ten. All of those coffees will keep us caffeinated and keep us going, creating this content talking to all of these amazing individuals and sharing their stories with all of you so go to buymeacoffee.com slash wildcast and buy us a coffee now let's go to asia trail master you started asia trail master how did that come about how was asia trail master something that came about as a as a as a new business as a new idea um well, I was, like I was saying, so I was I had started to work uh, with Nordic Ways in China as a race director, and I was designing new events and all that. And 
this was 2012, 2013, 2014, and this is when trail running kind of boomed in first in Hong Kong. I know in Philippines it was also already quite uh, quite established at the time. Um, but then there was the big boom in Hong Kong with the Vibram Hong Kong 100. That was kind of the big 100K event uh, that suddenly exploded in popularity and was uh, very quickly followed by others. And in China, there was also an organizer in Dalian where I was studying in 2010. So, And I knew that organizer from my time then because I was part of the same club uh, in those days. It's actually, it was a triathlon club. Um, but all the endurance athletes, they were kind of part of that club. And um, so he also invited me to, to, to run the Dalian 100. I didn't do the 100K, then I did the 50K. Um, but this started in, in me, like a thinking process, like this trail running is actually really cool. Yeah. Because um, you're out in the open nature, it's running, but it's a bit also has a hiking element. It's not as, it's my personal opinion, at least for me, it's not as tough as running a marathon. Um, because, because yeah, you can just hike and it doesn't really matter. Yeah, yeah. There's sensations in the, in the pace, walking. Yeah. If you start walking on a road marathon, then uh, you're actually not really running anymore, and it's, it's not the same, right? And you don't do that, or at least. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you don't walk a marathon, right, or, or hike a marathon. Right, right. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, uh, I started to think a bit. I mean, what can we do to? Uh, because I, I then started to look around a bit, and then I found that there were events like in Philippines. I found that there was an event in Indonesia, um, and they were all, like all isolated, and nobody actually heard about them. Nobody knew about them. So I started to think, like, what if I create kind of a platform? Um, that combines all these races or at least puts them under like one umbrella so that it is easier for potential trainers, interested people to, to find out about them and then actually also take part in them if they wish to do so. Um, and that's then how it started. I developed this Asia Trade Master concept uh, that included also a championship so with uh, on points. So I developed a point system based on you know, race results and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, then I started to reach out to some of the organizers and uh, whether they were interested that I would be promoting their races under this Asia Trail Master umbrella. Um, and they thought it was a very good idea because they themselves, they had no access to other country runners because maybe they had language skills that were not there. Um, yeah. The English language skills were not good enough, um, or the Chinese language skills were not good enough. And that time, China was quite open. Remember, um, so yeah, I mean, I helped them out with all that, and that that was quite uh, quite um, well received in 2015. That was the first season. It was all very modest. It was not like it is now. Huh? Um, but we had some good uh, races and a bit of competition also still for that championship. It was Arif Wismoyono, who is still very good today uh, from Bandung. Yeah, and, and he won the championship. And uh, Ma Yensing from China was the female champion. She was actually really good also. Um, and then in 2016, we actually already made a big leap forward um, because then there were races in, in Malaysia, a lot of races in Malaysia already joining. Um, in Indonesia, in Philippines, uh, we had Hong Kong. I think 2016 was the year we joined as well. Yeah, correct. If I'm not mistaken. That's yeah. correct, yeah, CMU. Yeah, didn't join in 2016. Yeah, and then suddenly the calendar was like booming. Yeah, um, and also the level of competition was already like com becoming a lot bigger because a lot of these trail runners in Asia, they saw in Asia Trail Master an opportunity to actually compete against other fellow-minded runners. Um, competition is something addictive. Yeah? Healthy competition is something addictive. It's also for me, I really like competition. I like to test myself against others. Right, of course. In a friendly way. Yeah, uh, It motivates me to train harder or to train better. Um, and, and yeah, a lot of runners also like that because it, up until that point, it was only about yeah, going to UTMB, qualify for UTMB. Right, right. It's, there's no sort of local series around Asia, right? Yeah, exactly. There was no, yeah, you were just doing a race, okay, and then you had the competition, the race. But yeah, in the Asia Trail Master, you have to compete over several races in a season. 
um, very often against the same kind of runners. So that created also a bit of a bond between those runners because it's nice. Yeah. So, and uh, we had some and very different courses, I would say. Like, yeah, yeah. Also, and we had some very colorful people in 2016 who were also good in front of the camera. Uh, Manolito Divina, very well known. Oh, yeah, Manolito, yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. He was the champion in 2016, eventually, um, by beating, amongst others, uh, also Arif Wismoyona again, but also Jan Nielsen. Jan Nielsen was a Norwegian guy, but based in Thailand and. Uh, he was a maniac <laughs> in ultra running. Yeah, he ran every every race. Basically, he ran every race at a very high level. But unfortunately for him, he also destroyed his feet in the process. Yeah. Yeah. He ran and, too uh, much, unfortunately. He ran too much. And, and in 2017, his, his trail running career was uh, essentially over. Yeah? Um, I had contact with him actually a couple of weeks ago um, because Jan Nielsen, um, okay. he ran a race in Thailand, a trail race. And I must be, I think it was his first race. Recently. Yeah, yeah, a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago, something like that. A short distance, yeah. But I texted him. I said, "Jan, are you making a comeback?" Or, but he said, "No, only short distance. He cannot run long anymore." Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was too much. Like I remember, he ran every ultra in Asia, basically, yeah. like every hundred k and hundred miles in Southeast Asia. He ran all of them in one year. Yeah, correct. Yeah, including all those in Indonesia at the time. Remember, yeah, the, those are all crazy ones as well. All the, <laughs> the extreme tough uh, ultras in Indonesia that were then part of Asia Tremaster, also, including Rinjani. And he was the first and only finisher of Rinjani 100. That year, he was the only finisher, Jan Nielsen. So, I mean, I've, we've both run Rinjani and we know how difficult that mountain is. It's yeah. it's almost impossible to run it. It's, it's like a hiking, a fast hike. Yeah, yeah. But what was also astonishing about Jan Nielsen was that, you know, he was 50 years old. Oh, was he? I didn't actually realize that he was he that He was old. already 50 years old at the time, and he was just beating everybody. I mean, okay, I mean, Manolito also beat him, you know, it depends on the course, right? But when on the really extreme, extremely tough ultras, Jan Nielsen was, was the man. Yeah, he was unbeatable. <laughs> so he, he was the, the guy to beat, yeah, so... And, and you know, after so many years that you've been doing Asia Trail Master. Now it's been, what, seven years, is it? 2015 yeah, to seven. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. And uh, how would you differentiate the, the trail runners in Southeast Asia versus, let's say, the European ones in, in character performance? Obviously, performance, we're still a little below, below the European runners, but um, how, how do you see... Uh, seeing, you know, the competition that we've had over the last seven years in the Asia Trail Masters? Um, I think the general tendency is that um, the Asian trail running scene is becoming more competitive, very clearly. So, uh, yeah, that, that's a fact. But it's true also that, um, in general, Asian runners are still a bit behind, let's say, the Western elites, yeah? Um, I think a lot of it has to do with, with, with budgets, basically, you know, um, when you are an elite runner in Asia and you're actually trying to, to be professional trail runner, professional elite runner in, in Asia, you run almost every week yeah, because you want to make some money, prize money, auto score prize money. Whereas a Western elite runner, he is, uh, he is going training for weeks to do that one race. And after that one race, he does recovery for a couple of weeks. Yeah. And then he focuses on the next big race, maybe two months later. Yeah. Um, and I think when you're talking about peak performance, yeah, that creates differences. Yeah. Um, but it is, but it is improving because there's a lot of, well, a lot. I mean, there are runners now that have coaches yeah, that have qualified coaches here in Asia as well. So I do believe that uh, between now and the next 10 years, we will see some Asian trail running elites also performing at the world level. Uh, and then I'm not talking about the experts, but really Asian. The Chinese seem to have broken through a little bit. Yeah, the Chinese broken through, but they, that's of course still also a bit of a different thing. Yeah, um, Because many of these Chinese that broke through a couple of years ago, especially, they come from the road running academies. Ah, okay, and these, okay. were the, these were the runners that were... Uh, yeah, how to say, I mean, laid off by these academies because they were deemed not fast enough to join the national team of China on the marathon, yeah, or on track and field. They were too slow. 
but yeah, these are two ten, two ten marathon runners. Yeah, in the case of the guys. So if they then start competing on trail, yeah, obviously, uh, <laughs> because this is a thing also with trail running and road running when we're talking about competition. Um, and I think Jim Walmsley fu- fully understands that is that a lot of trail runners they don't um, focus enough on speed training. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, also I, in Asia, I, mean, I don't. <laughs> so. There's a very high emphasis. There's a very high emphasis on distance, right? And a lot of runners they forget that. Uh, yeah, distance and altitude, the elevation yeah. gain and distance. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but yeah, if you then if you if because you you know there was there was a moment a couple of years ago, 2018 or something like that, there were quite a few road runners joining the Hong Kong 100 and joining a couple of other big races in the world. And then the established trail running guard was kind of saying, uh, what are these guys coming to do here? You know, they're coming to take away our prize money, our prizes, our fame. Yeah. So but that's the thing. I think uh, trail running, if when the overall budgets increase, because at the moment also at world level, there's still not a lot of budget yeah, in trail running. Um, yeah, yeah. But, it's, it's still a very low budget, despite, yeah. you know, the popularity at the moment. But if that increases, then first of all, we will see more Africans coming into the sport. And uh, and then we will also see a lot of more coaches coming in and the overall level will increase. But especially the speed will increase, I think. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the average speed will increase a lot. So I think that is also a big difference. And then, yeah, in Asia, um, maybe in this context, I can say something about the Vietnam Mountain Marathon that took place last week. Um, there, as you may know, there was a young woman, age 33, who beat all the men on the 100K. I did see that. Yeah, Hati Hao. Um, she's, she's phenomenal. Yeah, She started running two years ago. And uh, she started also with doing the short distance. She lives in Sapa, actually, in the northwest of Vietnam. Oh, in Sapa, Vietnam, yeah, okay. Where the Vietnam Mountain Marathon took place, takes place. And she was actually motivated by that event, which started, I think, in 2014 for the first time, or 15. And she was motivated by that event to, to start running again during the COVID pandemic because there were no tourists anymore in Sapa anymore, neither. So she had to do something, started running. Anyway, um, but she was then picked up by uh, a certified coach in Hanoi and they have been working together now for a year and look at the result now. I mean, she beat all the guys and the guys that were behind her, they are established Asian trail elites. Yeah. They're good runners. Yeah. So good runners. And I'm, I'm really thrilled to, to see what will happen now uh, with Hati Hao. Um, She will try to become Asia trail master champion this year. It's her big objective, um, also to reach, um, I mean, to gain exposure in the Asian market. Yeah, so she wants all the brands uh, and everybody to see her and see her performance, to create opportunities. Yeah, um, but at the moment, yeah, there is no limit to this uh, young woman because uh, she was not pushed to the limit on, on last weekend. Really, looks she fresh at the finish line. <laughs> she was fresh. Yeah? She wow. just ran her pace. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And beat all the men. And she beat all the men. She beat Gaita Murizur, Noam Trong, uh, Laria Polinario from Philippines was there. Um, you know, it, it was it was impressive. And it's great to see. Um, on the 100 miles, there was a guy also, Quang Trang, and he's also coached by the same guy, a Spanish coach, uh, Gim. Um, and he's also back at his best, or even better than ever now. Wow. Yeah. Quang Trang was always like a top talent. Yeah, yeah. But then also, yeah, you know... There is no real structure in trail running. You know, he was he had a few years that he was performing a bit less well, and now under this new coaching regime, proper training plan, proper nutrition plan, Quang Trang is also phenomenal. He did 100 miles in uh, what was it, 23 hours? Mm-hmm. Wow, that's that's really fast. 23 hours for 100 miles. Yeah, it's <laughs> crazy. Yeah. So, so the talent is there in Asia. Yeah, I think uh, between now and and ten years, we will certainly see some Asian elites performing at the highest level. Because I know that there is a few Asians already performing, uh, sometimes at a, at a high level in UTMB. But then we're talking top one hundred, which is great. But let's be honest. I mean, on, on, if we're talking competition, strictly competition at world level, top one hundred doesn't mean anything, right? It's yeah. The next step, the next step is to get in the top twenty and then top ten, right? Uh, at least, yeah. How do you see like uh, 
trail running sort of evolving here in in Southeast Asia uh, in the next five or ten years? Like how how do you see the races evolving? Will we have more UTMB style hundred mile races? I mean that's the popularity is essentially exploded after Ironman bought them. They they have the marketing money now and and the the basically the 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 branding popularity. Uh, how do you think trail running will explode here, or will it be replaced like like adventure racing was replaced in in the last um, decade? Yeah, it's a very good question, and I actually asked myself the same thing. Um, yeah, the franchise of UTMB by UTMB is is now established uh, mainly in Thailand. Um, I think we will still need to find out in the coming years whether it will be successful or not. At the moment, yeah, clearly, I mean, uh, everybody wants to go there. Right? Yeah, everyone. Yeah. Everybody wants to go there now. This is very clear. Um, but it's it's an expensive race. Yeah? yeah, for a lot of runners, it's it's an expensive registration. So I wonder, first of all, I mean, are people gonna pay this fee like every year? To do the same well, race. if you, I think if you only qualify once every few years, I mean, unless you're an elite, you can you only have so many chances, really. And yeah. in my but opinion, also, I, I would pay. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, but uh, th- I also know that for a lot of runners uh, going to Chamonix, which I highly recommend, is expensive. Way, yeah, is expensive, and it's a once yeah, in a yeah. lifetime experience. This is also what I heard from a lot of uh, Chinese, but also Japanese runners already. So they like to come to Asia Trail Master more and more. So we have increasingly more Japanese elite runners coming to the Asia Trail Master Championship Series because they say, yeah, we have been in, in UTMB already twice, three times, and, you know, it's time for something else for us. You know, we want to explore new countries, new races. Uh, we have seen it in Chamonix. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that, that's that's one thing. Um of course, I mean, there will always be a lot of interest um, in Asia to go to Chamonix. It's it's a perfect holiday destination, especially for Asians. Of course, yeah. Even it's, not for running, fun. you know, it's it's it's, it's a nice it's place. It's a really yeah. cool event. Yeah, I've been, I've witnessed the event twice myself. It's it's fantastic, yeah. Um, but the franchise events, yeah, they also have a lot of uh, criticism, right, by some people, also by some elite runners. They are not exactly happy with the current point system that they have and the stones and all that. and um, and then the high, the high fees that they charge, and and also the the branding fee for the organization is huge. Eh? Yeah, it's huge. And, like uh, I don't know, three hundred thousand euros or something. Ex- like that. Exactly, exactly, three hundred thousand euros or more, and um, that's a bit controversial as well in some areas, yeah, because this is where does this money come from? Uh, it's normally ministries, right? I think and for Thailand, it has to be the government ministry, you know, like tourism or something yeah. like that. And then, of course, there's also local organizers in Thailand who argue, okay, but why, why, why not us? Why don't we get uh, any kind of support in in that way? Yeah, why don't we get this kind of cash support? I mean, we can also put up good events. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I mean, there, there is a bit of um, friction already sometimes that I pick up. Um. Especially in Thailand now, uh, because that's where they're they're based. But also left and right in other countries, also the same things come up already. Um, but yeah, this is the Ironmanization of the sport. Yeah, so uh, the franchise, the BioTP franchise, is, is managed by Ironman. Um, so yeah, it's it's a brilliant model, eh? business wise, of course. Uh, yeah, but whether it whether whether it's good. Whether it is good for the development of the sport of trail running, that is another matter. Yeah, Because I think also a couple of years ago, there was a lot of talk of having trail running as an Olympic sport, which I think would have been fantastic and good for the Olympics as well. Actually, you know, it's vice versa. Um, but that is currently apparently off the table. Um, and, and that, you know, we have to say, I mean, I would like to talk with some people from ITRA about that. Because ITRA is based in France. Why is that? Why is it? Why, why is it off the well, table now? It's, it's definitely not on the program in Paris. Right. That's true. Yeah. This is what I mean. So ITRA is based in France, and the next Olympic Games are in Paris, in France, and that was the whole talk about it. So you know, and uh, afterwards, the next Olympics in 2028 are in, in uh, Los Angeles, right, the US, and uh, obstacle racing is apparently going to be on the program there. Is it? Oh wow. 
Yeah. Well, the, and that's uh, the Spartan organization are working towards that. They're so so much better organized, I think, than trail running is. Unfortunately, I've seen it here in the Philippines. I, I well, I have to say, I'm very impressed with the Spartan organization myself, especially what they have done in the Philippines. Yeah. 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 Um, if you see what they have uh, built there, and yeah, okay, they have taken away some of the best trail runners also, but fair enough because pretty much all of the best. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, but it's good for the people because uh, they actually earn salaries, a monthly salary to do the a sport. They yeah. earn a salary. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, all of them, Sandy, Manolito, they all have salaries, and yeah. it's it's a career. You know, it's a career for for them to be able to do what they're good at, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Elias Tabak, for example. I mean, when he started yeah, out yeah, running, Tabak, he, he didn't yeah. even have shoes, right? Right. Yeah. 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 So uh, and now and, and now he's a professional athlete. So he made a name with a couple of races, and he's a train master, and then also Spartan picked him up. Um, yeah, it's it's a pity that he's no longer competing in ATM, but I fully understand. I mean, and this is also about Asia Trailmaster, right? I mean, um, we are a regional series and the objective, it has always been on the website, the objective of Asia Trailmaster is to develop the sport of trail running in Asia and its runners, yeah? Mm-hmm. In a nutshell, yeah, yeah. Yeah. so um, we are very happy when we hear these things about Manolito, Ilias Tabak uh, and other runners that they move on to a real professional sport level. Um, so that's, that's really good for us to hear. Do you think the f- in Asia, will we have that level of, you know, becoming a professional trail runner to actually make a living out of this if you're an elite athlete? Um, well, I know a few have tried, yeah, and with reasonable success. Uh, Roof Teresia in Indonesia was one. Um, but the corona pandemic um, threw a spanner in the works eh, for a lot of these people. I mean, Ruth was basically without income all of a sudden for a long period of time and she had to look for a job. And I think she's now working for, for Decathlon, if I'm not mistaken. So That's right. Yeah. This has then again now an impact on her training activities. So she has to select her races much more careful and, and all that. And um but yeah, I mean, she tried it out and there's a few others. Um, Tahira Namunisa, actually, in Malaysia, is also one of our former champions who is now a professional duathlete. That's true. She yeah. got silver medal in the Southeast Asia Games this year for Malaysia. So, um, but yeah, to, to make it as a professional trail runner in Asia is, is difficult at the moment. Um, Veronika Vodovichova also knows about that. Uh, you know, because brands here champion. aren't really willing to give money. Yeah, uh, I mean, even for us, for organizers, it's it's so hard for us to get to get funds to to run our races through through the brands. You know, they they tend to give you products, and and for a lot of the the elites, they get products which they need to sell in order to actually get the cash out of yeah. out of these products. You know, so that's that's I mean, that can't be the life of a professional athlete, obviously. Correct. Yeah. And I think, of course, also that the the Corona situation, um, yeah, halted the development a little bit of trail running yeah, in this in this part of the world. So it was it is it was growing a lot, um, and there was more money coming in as well. But now, yeah, the economy, the global economy, is is suffering, and uh, yeah, obviously, this also has an impact on, on niche sports. Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, like trail running. Um, we were talking earlier about cyclocross. It's the same, yeah? Also, the cyclocross industry is suffering as a non-Olympic sport, yeah? Um, and trail running has also then the disadvantage that it's not really a spectator sport. It's not a stadium sport. So you don't have, like, entry tickets or something like that that you can sell. So you're really, yeah... It, it's it's complicated and also this year so season seven of asia train master we were very happy that we were back in action since march um we will have about 25 events in total in the championship calendar plus yeah, that's really good a whole list of candidate races because i'm being really positively surprised by the response of of um, of people throughout uh, the continent about Asia Trainmaster. I mean, our viewership and our reach on social media is much higher than ever. Nice. Yeah. Um, so that's very good for, for us to, to, to hear and to see. And, but at the same time, I also know that a lot of organizers are suffering this year. Um, oh, yeah. Us included. <laughs> yeah, I think you know as well. <laughs> um, so the budgets are low, lower in many cases. And for a lot of organizers, it's also just a matter of survival at the moment. 
Uh, I mean, to keep the event alive. So they do the event because they still had a backlog from 2020 um, with registrations <laughs> and, and maybe also some sponsorship deals and all that. I don't know. But many events are operating on very, very tight budgets this year. And um, I think this will still continue for a bit. Hopefully next year, touch wood, uh, that will become better again and there will be more money coming into the sport again. And um, you've... you've- You've done a different sort of format for the Asia Trail Master Championships this year. Um, maybe you can explain a little bit of that, how how that works. Yeah, it's so that's about the championship um, competition. Yeah, we changed a little bit, also keeping COVID in mind. So when at the end of 2021, we decided, uh, I mean, things were looking a bit more bright overall concerning COVID. And we were becoming optimistic that we could actually have a 2022 season. Um, we st- I start, at least I started to reflect a lot about the, the championship regulations, which in the past said that you need to do at least five races to have a realistic chance of becoming champion. Yeah. So it was all based on points, right? You can do 10 races, you can do 14 races, like some people did, but only your best five results count. Yeah. That has always been the case. So it's purely points-based. But yeah, because of COVID and the travel restrictions that came with it, I knew that this would all not be over and, and the restrictions lifted in a matter of a couple of weeks. So I think it, I thought that in a couple of countries it will still go on until at least June, July. And that's actually also what happened. I mean, for example, Japan is still a problematic. Yeah? Uh, China, we don't even have to talk about. In Hong Kong, yeah, everybody knows. It's, uh, you cannot even have events in Hong Kong yet that are more than 50K and that have eight stations. So um, so in that context, I started to think, okay, this is not going to be fair because this is, in a lot of countries, people will never be able to do five races. Um, so I was thinking, okay, why don't I develop uh, an, a new concept whereby people can score their, their points in their own countries, but only have to travel maybe once a year and then at the very end of the year, and that's then to the Asia Trail Master Final. So that was kind of the thing. So reduce the necessity for travel for the runners who want to compete in the ATM Championship. And that's why we now have this system. Um, only the four best results uh, count. So, you know, so it's, you need to have one result less, basically. And um, in most of the countries, in bigger countries, there are four races on the calendar. So you can just stay in your own country and do all the ATM races there. And then you have your four races already to get a realistic shot at qualifying for your national country team. And that's the new bit, of course. The ATM Championship final will be a one-day race in Philippines, Mount Apuscaris, 75 kilometers, 17th of December. And it will be held in the format of national country teams, teams consisting of maximum five men and five women. And who are these five men? So this will be the best teams, best, best runners. On the basis of the ATM points during the year, yeah. So, so basically, the runners, they have the whole season, they have the time. Just collect points, score points, and then uh, actually after your event, after CMU, will be kind of the cutoff. Um, I think in, in many countries, many of the runners will already be clear before CMU, but at least CMU will be probably the last opportunity for some people to try and get into the top five or the top four in a few countries um, and qualify for the Asia Trail Master Championship final. And then the whole idea is that this is a Trail Master final. Will be, we will be putting the spotlights on all these qualified runners. Um, and they will be getting a national country shirt, uh, right. team, yeah. team shirt, t shirt, yeah. shirt to run in, um, all kinds of other stuff. Um, of course, there's prizes for the top 10, as always, in Asia Trail Master final. Um, and a lot of perks. There will be press conference. Uh, there will be photo shoots. Um, so it will be a fantastic opportunity, actually, for all those runners who are qualified, all the qualifiers, to put themselves and their sponsors also, if they have sponsors, to put themselves in the spotlight. And that's kind of the idea as well. So we want to really help them also to market themselves. And I know that some are very good in that. Hisashi Kitamura knows perfectly how to put himself oh, yeah, in the picture. Course, yeah. Um, he has a branding yeah. photo at the finish line. Exactly, with his karate <laughs> kick and all that. Um, for other runs, it's a bit more difficult, but 
um, you know, it's all out there, uh, how it will work already. There's a dedicated web page, um, and especially the, the faster runners in Asia, the competitive runners, most of them, they have some kind of sponsor already, or at least supporters. So I hope that um, they will also tell these people, look, I mean, you have an opportunity here to, here to be in the spotlight to make the most out of it. Yeah, and I think Asia Trailmaster in its history has been very good at spotlighting the top runners. I mean, they've they've gotten like you know like Elias has gotten a job after you know being in the Asia Trailmaster Championships, yeah. Manolito as well, um, Stephen Ong, Ta- yeah, exactly. uh, yeah, Stephen uh, Tahira. Everybody who's been a champion in the Asia Trailmaster has has gone on to somewhat. You know, use that as a springboard to do other things or or, or have a good career, get more sponsors. Um, and um, looking forward, maybe five years. How do you see Asia Trailmaster then? Like, what is your what is your dream of how Asia Trailmaster will will evolve in the next five or ten years? Well, I hope that this year's uh, season will end well, first of all, because we still need to be very careful with uh, world developments, global developments. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and with this new format for the championship final, I hope this, um, at the moment, everything is going in the right direction. And I also hope that it will, you know, happen the way that I have imagined it. Um, and then we move on from there next year, um, hopefully with... Uh, bigger budget we are in talks with some um, bigger sponsors for next year actually and uh, for the first time that would also include sponsors that have um, basically nothing to do with trail running oh nice so that's kind of a new thing finally that's just money <laughs> yeah also hopefully yeah yeah so um yeah that that's something that is uh, very important for me in these weeks actually because we're negotiating and trying to make this happen um if that comes through then um yeah then a lot will become possible for next year i mean a lot more will become possible and it will also be beneficial for the all the events that are part of atm and hopefully also for the runners who compete in the championship so it will be a win-win for everybody so i hope that this indeed comes through but as we talked about earlier the current economic situation in the world is not so good but okay let's stay optimistic and then I, I hope to continue to evolve this and um, actually with fewer and fewer races in the championship. Um, that's kind of my idea because now we have 25 on the plan. There was 30 in 2019. We had 30, but actually I think it's still a bit, it's too many. I want to go closer to 20. I think 20 is like a, a good number, you know. Um, I think so. I think so. Yeah. You also get to like, as a, as a race organizer, you know, of course, there are competition. You know, the other races are our competition. But but also, as a runner, you know, I look at races, they have to have a certain quality. You know, a lot of the races tend to be not good quality. Obviously, the safety standards are low. The aid stations are not so good. Not enough yeah. marshals on the course and all of these things, you know. But we do monitor that, of course, now in ATM. Yeah, so of if, course. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we have this candidate race label set up, and sometimes there's an organizer a bit upset because why do I have to go through this candidate race process? I want to be part of a championship already now. I said, uh, yeah, sorry, in my series, no. First, you have to tell me and show me, especially show me what you can do with your event. Um, that's kind of a safety measure that we have imposed uh, the last yeah, few years. Yeah, of course, yeah. Uh, also because, I mean, for example, in Malaysia, I have 15 applications. 15? Wow. For that's five a lot. slots. Wow. Yeah. So 15 events want to be part of the Asia Trail Master Championship. And we have a maximum quota of five per country for big countries. Yeah, It's five. And the, the big country is basically a country with, with islands that, you know, East Malaysia and Peninsula Malaysia. You have all the Philippines with all the different islands, Indonesia and same. So they are going to have five races. Vietnam, Thailand is four maximum. So, um, yeah, so all these organizers, they basically, it's also a bit competition between themselves. Yeah? They have to, what is the best event? Or it's not necessarily the best event, and it's also not always the, the event with the biggest budget that is accepted. Because we do like boutique events as well. Uh-huh. Because I think it's very important that we keep on supporting grassroots as well. Um and boutique events, and if I may say so, maybe even CMU is also a bit kind of a boutique event. Oh yeah, we're we're in we're in that category. Yeah, for you sure. cannot have three thousand runners in CMU, right? Uh, no, 
<laughs> you know, so in, in Sapa, in Vietnam, Mountain Marathon, they can have that because they have a big, they have basically a city there with plenty of hotels and everything. So uh, that is not possible in, in other parts, um, like in Tinung Dan or also in North Sumatra, where we in Bukit Lawang, where we will have a, a championship points race next year for the first time. It was a candidate this year. It's also a boutique event. But uh, they cannot have thousands of runners. There's simply not enough space. Um, and we want to keep supporting these kind of events as well because they they are important for the local communities, right? I don't need to explain that to you, so that's why you do it, right? So yeah, yeah, exactly. So and I think it's very important also. Well, that was a very very good discussion, Chris. Thank you so much for sharing Asia Trailmaster, and of course, I look forward to uh, the Asia Trailmaster Championships at the end of the year, and of course, the CMU, you know. Uh, as our own event, having everybody there, you yourself included, yeah. uh, it's like a reunion every time we come together. So it's just a nice. And it's, and it's been three and a half years. Yeah, right? yeah. It's been three and a half it's years. Been three and a half years. And I think also it's, it's going to be fantastic, JP, because I know that there will be a lot of Filipino runners, competitive Filipino yeah. runners, will be there to make sure that they're part of the team Pilipinas yeah. for the championship final this year. Um, Yeah, it's going to be great for sure. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Chris. And uh, good luck with uh, the rest of the coverage for the Asia Trail Masters for the rest of the year. Thank you very much, CP. It's been a pleasure. And that's a wrap for this episode of the Wildcast Podcast. We hope you enjoyed hearing from Chris Vandervelde, founder and director of the Asia Trail Master Series. So we learned about Chris's journey as a trail runner and race director challenges and rewards of organizing trail running races in Asia and his vision for the future of the sport in the region. We also got a glimpse of, of course, the race that we organized, the Cordillera Mountain Ultra and uh, what the difficulties of of organizing races here in the Philippines. Uh, One of the interesting things, of course, is also Chris's background as a professional racer. when you see him, he's you know he's a big guy. You wouldn't think he has this huge engine, but then you put him on a bike or you mean get him running, and I mean he runs like a sub 3:30 marathon, even faster than that when he's really fit. So um, Chris definitely has the pedigree of a, of an athlete, and of course as someone who is dedicated to advancing the sport in Asia. We'd like to thank Chris for joining us today and sharing his insights and experiences with our listeners. Uh, and of course, if you're interested in learning more about the Asia Trail Master Series or the Cordillera Mountain Ultra, you can just search them online. You'll find all of the information about them, uh, both the race and of course the Asia Trail Master Series, which Chris has been managing over the last almost 10 years now. Uh, that's all for now. And we hope to have you listen to us once again on the next episode of the Wildcast Podcast. We're very thankful for this special community of all of you listening. And we'll catch you next time on the Wildcast Podcast.